0: My Father, we do ask now as we have this great privilege with freedom and without fear to gather together as your people to open your word that we might, by the work of the Spirit in us, in that word, hear the voice of Christ, of our Lord, our God, who has purchased us with his own blood, who has reconciled us to you, O Father, according to your plan. ...who has gathered us here today under your providence. And we ask that you would feed us, lift our hearts to what is true... ...to how we might live righteously and to the glory of God in this world. And we commit this to you and we pray in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. All right. well we come this morning to our final message... ...in what was intended to be one and then two and then three and now is four... ...but it's it. We will finish today... On the topic of loving confrontation. In other words, that aspect of body life that's so often neglected because of its difficulty. But which is so essential to our ministry to one another. In how we grow in grace and how we grow in our spiritual lives to glorify Christ. And so we're going to look at the last part of it uh, this morning. But before I do, let me remind us a little bit of where we've been. We've noted in fact that. ...with the command and with the expectation of the Lord... ...that we would be helping one another in our walk with Him... ...by helping each other deal with sin in our lives... ...that there is the, the other side of that, the dark side of it, if you will... ...of self-righteousness and judgmentalism. And Jesus dealt with that in the Gospel of Matthew... ...specifically, and in other places too. But in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. And so while we are commanded to help one another deal with sin in our lives... ...the very first warning that we need to begin with... ...is that we do that for their edification and for their good... ...and for the glory of Christ. And that we be aware of that sin, that little secret pernicious sin... ...that can hide in what can come off as the best of intentions... And namely that of judgmentalism. And so we want to avoid that. But nonetheless, having avoided that and bringing that to light, we are commanded to help one another in our life of pursuing holiness by dealing with sin and confronting sin. We are Christ's own instruments of love and grace in one another's lives. So really that ministry that we have to one another is the ministry of Christ through us to his body, to his children, to those in whom he is working and has given the grace to work out their salvation with fear and with trembling. And so we are Christ instruments in that endeavor. Now, I want to end it up this morning with just two questions, two questions that I'm going to present and answer. And the first one is this. Why do we love fail to confront sin in one another's lives. And, and really I think we could say the answer to that at least at some level is fairly obvious to us, but we'll consider at least three reasons of why do we fail to lovingly confront sin in one another's life? And then the second question that we'll answer is how are we to respond to someone who confronts sin in our own life? So it's one thing to obey that command to go to our brother or sister in Christ ...and help them confront, uh, deal with sin... ...it's another when it happens to us. How are we to respond to that? How do we glorify Christ in our attitude... ...when somebody comes to us? Well, let me begin simply just with the first question. Why do we fail to lovingly confront sin... ...in one another's life... In other words, what keeps us from so often obeying this command? And it is a command of the Lord. If any of you is caught in the trespass, he who is spiritual, is to go to such a one and to restore them. Is to deal with that sin. Is to also, in helping restore them, bear their burdens, carry their burdens with them. To walk alongside them in it. So we are to do that, and yet, as I've mentioned, this is one of the most misunderstood or neglected commands of the Lord in terms of our fellowship with one another. Let me give just a few reasons, then, why we may fail to do that, which is also meant to be, of course, an examination of our own hearts. And as we go through this, all of us at most likely, I'm going to assume and go out on a limb here and say all of us, at some point have failed in these. We've all failed in these. But the point is is that we recognize it as failure and we learn from it and we step back out to walk in righteousness. Uh, The first reason I would lay before you is why we don't confront sin in one another's life is because there is an ignorance of biblical love and the seriousness of sin and error. Now we address that in another way early on. I won't spend a lot of time on it here. But we address that biblical love, true love, the love that the Spirit produces in His people, the love that was shown to us by Christ, is a love that deals with the reality of sin. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, when he says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now, a part of that, the essential point there, is that love doesn't take pleasure in the sin of someone else. It doesn't have some secret delight in the sin of someone else. But there's also a principle that's pulled out of there that's related to our confronting sin in one another's life. Sin and error is the most destructive thing that there is. Sin destroys. It leads to death. Error destroys. It leads to confusion, a lack of worship, a lack of growth, and it can blind Uh, The minds of the unbelieving, of course, from the knowledge of truth. But even as it gets into the lives of Christians, it hinders their ability to worship and their ability to grow in Christ. So if we understand the reality of sin and we understand its destructive realities in one another's life, love takes concern for that. It's no different than if somebody had a disease that we had the ability to help them. We would want to do that. We would want to come alongside them. If we saw one of our, those of us who are parents and children and we see them going down a destructive path. If we have a friend or a comrade who was lost in a world of alcohol or drugs or foolishness. Love would go to that person and say, what you're doing is wrong. You are destroying yourself. And I want to help you. I want to point that out. I want you to turn and to live a life and to make decisions that will be for your blessing and for your good. So it is a matter of love. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, he says, Though we do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoice in the truth. On a negative side of that, we looked at 1 Corinthians 5. Again, we're not going to repeat all of it. But in 1 Corinthians 5, where the Corinthians had this incredible sin that was among their body... Uh, someone who had his father's wife, most likely they're his mother-in-law. But in either case, this horrendous sin, which was not even committed among the Gentiles. And Paul says, rather than mourning over this sin, rather than going to this brother and dealing with it, you have just tolerated it here out of a false sense of what spirituality, a false sense of tolerance and a false sense of what it means to love them. And Paul says you are wrong. In fact, he says you have become arrogant in failing to confront this sin. This sin which is bringing reproach upon the name of Christ. This sin which is like a little leaven that leavens the whole lump and is spreading wickedness among the body. You are to, out of love for Christ and love for that brethren, to deal with it. He says in verse 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. In other words, Paul himself had to step in, in this case, and put that brother out of the fellowship, had to deliver him over to Satan, in the words of Paul. And I would take that to mean that he put him out of the fellowship, he was excommunicated from the fellowship, and delivered over to whatever Satan might do to him in the world. And that was, in fact, in this case, Paul says, a mercy of God that his soul might be saved in the end. So if we understand the reality of sin and we understand the effect that it has on us as individuals, on the body of Christ and on the glory of Christ and his people, then we will want to help one another as a matter of love in pointing that sin out and dealing with it. As a matter of fact, I think one put this very helpfully in these words. Let me quote. It says, Often it is easier for others For others in our lives not to say anything that is when there's sin. But just let us go merrily on our way down a path of folly and death. But reproof is an act of love. A willingness to own that awkward moment. And perhaps having your counsel thrown back in your face. It's for the risk of of doing someone good. When a spouse or friend or family member or associate rises to the level of such love, we should be profoundly thankful. It is an expression of love, our love for one another, to put aside our own sense of safety, our own sense of being accepted and likable, to go to them and help them because we love them. And indeed, we should be profoundly thankful because that person who has come to us has just taken a great risk in their service to Christ by serving us. That person has just made themselves vulnerable to help you or to help me. To be an instrument of Christ's grace in our life. And we should be thankful for that. We'll pick that up again later. But the first point is this. Why do we not confront sin? Sometimes it's a failure to understand what biblical love is. And the seriousness of sin. A second reason is this. That... We could, be, we could fail to confront sin in one another's lives simply because we have failed to obey the commandment to be involved in one another's life. In other words, if there is a neglect of fellowship, if there is a neglect of relationships and ministry within the church, then we won't be able to help one another with sin in their lives simply because we won't know about it. We're not available. We're not present where we need to be. Uh, let me just give you one text as a background of that. I'm just going to read it. Uh, many places, we could mention, I didn't have this written down, but we could mention as well 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about, and again we've covered this, but where he talks about we're members of one another. So what happens to one member affects everybody. It affects the whole body. We're, we're integrally related to one another. But he says in Hebrews chapter 10 this. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the general principle that I would pull out of there is simply this. That... A part of our fellowship with one another, a part of our gathering, the reason that you're here this morning, a part of our coming together on the Lord's Day for corporate worship, is to be instrument of grace in one another's lives. That includes, of course, encouragement. Encouragement is not only, you know, the kind of sitting on the sideline and you know you're doing great kind of encouragement. Encouragement means as well addressing those things that prompt one another toward holiness. Holiness. Towards obedience to the Lord. Encouragement can actually mean, biblically then, also pointing out error in one another's lives. Encouraging them to turn from what is sinful or foolish to what is holy and what is righteous and what is wise. And that means then that when we come together, we actually need to be involved with one another's lives. And sometimes we don't have that ministry to one another simply because we're not involved with one another. So how could we possibly know how to help them? It's in the context of corporate fellowship that we're able to observe one another's life and character and circumstances and to be lovingly involved. Here's a third reason. One is just a failure to understand biblical love. One is that we're uninvolved in the fellowship as we should be. A third reason is this, is that we're timid and lack confidence in our right and ability to confront sin in another person's life. Timid in both our understanding of, of our right and ability. We lack confidence. Sometimes there's just a sense of this. I'm sure that you felt this. Who am I to go to that person? I've got sin in my own life. Who am I to go to them and point out sin when I know that I've got sin myself that I'm dealing with? Who am I to say anything to that other person? However, where there is clear sin, even the suspicion of sin, it is a matter of love to go to that person, no matter how timid you might feel. Again, let me give you a verse with that. Is he says this, in, uh, and you can just write it down. But he says in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says this to Tim- Timothy. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Now, that has in its most immediate context then a reference to Timothy fulfilling his ministry as a servant of the gospel to proclaim it no matter what might come as a result of that proclamation, no matter what kind of suffering might come as a result of that proclamation. But the broader point behind that Uh, encouragement or exhortation of the apostle is that God has given us every necessary resource we need to fulfill our ministry that he has placed before us, our ministry to one another. And it is, in fact, a ministry that we have to one another to help one another in this walk of holiness, to confront sin. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and discipline. He's given us the power to live out the instructions of love that he's he's laid out before us. He's given us the power to live out the duties that we have to one another that are far beyond our comfort zone, far beyond our natural abilities, far beyond our natural inclinations. Love for the brethren is a fruit of the Spirit and it involves more than the nice, pleasant duties or the occasional sacrifice of time it involves more than just that sort of pleasant kind of fellowship as we all know anybody who's in a family anybody who has friends friends real friends that love at sometimes is very difficult right it gets nitty and gritty at times and that's the kind of love that we are to have with one another we delight in all the joys of fellowship and we delight in those kind of those kind of sweet things of love, but it also means that we have to do the difficult and uncomfortable things of love, which at times means pointing out sin and error in one another's lives. One has made a comment on that verse that I think is helpful to repeat. It says this, Our spiritual lives are measured by our love. If our first love is for self, our life will center on seeking our own welfare, our own objectives, our own comfort and success. We will not sacrifice ourselves for others or even for the Lord. But if we love with the love God provides, our life will center on pleasing Him and on seeking the welfare of others, especially other Christians. Godly love is the first fruit of the Spirit, and it is manifested when we live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5. So, in other words, the strength and the courage to go to that brother and sister is the strength that the Spirit supplies when we feel overwhelmed by our own lack of ability to do that, when we feel overwhelmed by a sense of timidity and of fear, we are to remember that this is Christ's ministry through us to that other person. And Christ will enable us by His Spirit to fulfill that ministry when we rely on Him. When we remember that in our weakness we are strong. When we rely not on our own strength, But we rely on His strength. So when you go, you are not going on your own personal agenda. And sometimes that's where those doubtful thoughts come in. Who am I to do that? Is this just me? Or, you know, so on and so forth. But we have to remember this is God's agenda. This is Christ's agenda. It is for His glory. It is to be an instrument of good in that other person's life. That brother or sister's life. And so we can go then on his agenda in obedience to him who is the Lord of the church and we can go in his strength and we can do so to serve and to minister truth and love to one of our brethren. I think uh, that always stands out to me in a personal experience that I had. It was during my seminary days. I can remember in this one class, uh, the, the, uh, Trisha's smiling. She's heard the story, uh, there is this one class that I had, and the rule was is that your, whatever your assignment was, your homework is due at the beginning of class. It's due at the beginning of class. Well, we're in class one time, and I sat in the back row. And, as, and what you had to do is when, when, your, when class began, a sheet of paper would be sent around, and then you just signed, I read this pages, and so on and so forth. And, and then that was your affirming that I did the assignment. And so this piece of paper is coming around, and as it's coming around, I had a feeling that maybe some of y'all had in your school days of like, oh no, we were supposed to read that? And so I realized that I hadn't run it. So I pull out my book, and I do my best speed reading course techniques to try to finish these pages as this paper is making its way back to me so that I could sign it off and say that I read these pages. Well, as I did that, I had a brother who saw me do that. And we went through class, and that was fine. And when we took a break from class, and we went out into the hallway, this brother came to me, and he said, "Hey, man, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to judge you or anything. He says, but I don't want Satan to get. A, this is, these are his words. I just don't want Satan to get a hold of you." And he says, "You know, I, I think I don't know if that was right, you know, to do that because we, that was supposed to be due at the beginning of class, and you know, and it wasn't. And so then I'm like, you know." embarrassment, conviction, and all of those things. I put on my best face in the moment, like, you know, thank you and so forth. Uh, But it was actually a sincere face. And so I realized that here this brother was loving me enough to come up to me. I went back to my professor after class, and I told him, I said, uh, I did not have this reading finished. I said when the paper was coming around, you know, I read the pages quickly, and then uh, we did it. And he was actually fine with that. Uh, Thankfully, he he didn't get too upset. But that was really beside the point. The point was is that this brother loved me enough to come up to me to make himself vulnerable, to point something out. He did it in a very humble way, but he did it in a very direct way. And that lesson stayed with me for even here uh, all these years later. And so I I loved that brother for doing that. I appreciated him. I had a great honor for him, and I wanted to emulate him and be like him uh, to someone else because I knew the great help that I received from it. So it is it is a matter of love, and it is a matter of God giving us the grace to fulfill that ministry of love to one another. Let me give a last one here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really have to speed up here. Um, and this is the number one reason, though, why we don't do it, and this you could probably already figure. And it's this: You want to form an answer in your mind of what you think it is. The first word begins with "f." It's called "fear of man." Fear of man." The number one reason that I think that we do not go to one another to confront sin and to have that ministry in each other's life is a fear of man. A fear of being thought as judgmental. A fear of being thought legalistic. A fear of being thought unkind. Or any other negative opinion of ourselves. And indeed we can be guilty of all of those sins. We're we're capable of it. But we can be paralyzed by the fear of committing those sins or more likely of being thought to have commit those sins, and therefore we say nothing. It's fear of man. It's fear of another person's opinion. When you are the one to confront sin, you're making yourself vulnerable. Vulnerable to attack, vulnerable to being misunderstood, vulnerable to being rejected. And it's hard to be vulnerable, isn't it? It's very hard to be vulnerable. That's probably the thing that is the hardest for us. Jesus alludes to this possibility in John chapter 7. Let me just mention it to you in verse 7. uh, When speaking to his half-brothers, he said this, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Why could the world not hate his half-brothers? Because they were not the ones testifying to the world that its deeds were evil. Jesus was. Therefore, he brought upon himself... The censure and the hatred of the world. There's a principle there. And it is this. The world only hates those that expose its error and sin. Very simple. If you don't expose sin and error, you can have the world's favor and be at peace with the world with those in your immediate sphere of life. However, if you are willing to point out sin and error, you run the risk of inviting scorn, rejection, hatred, All of these sort of negative responses. Jesus, if we were to build on what he said in John 7, loved the Father and loved the world enough to take that upon himself, didn't he? To speak the truth so that the light would shine in the darkness. That was an expression of love. When he pointed out sin, it was an expression of the love of God toward fallen humanity. It was an expression of his goodness, of his good character. Now, that's in the context of a world that has fallen. I would suggest that the same thing can happen even with sinning Christians. As long as sin is never confronted, we have this feeling that we are safe. We are safe from any negative opinions. Everybody's going to like us. They're going to think well of us. They're going to be pleased with us. And so in order to protect ourselves from any negative opinion, in order to protect ourselves from the possibility of being misunderstood in order to protect ourselves from that fearful reality of vulnerability, it's easier to say nothing. It's easier to remain silent. And we have the idea that we are safe. Safe. But when we would dare to confront sin, we are vulnerable to, again, to potential anger, rejection, misunderstanding, or insults. We do not know if that person will have the attitude of a scoffer. A scoffer is described in Proverbs in this way, he who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Sometimes you don't know whether they're a scoffer or a wise person until you go and reprove them, and then their action will display their character and their spiritual maturity. Let me give you a striking example of this in Second Corinthians as it was modeled by the Apostle Paul. As you know, Paul's relationship to this Corinthian church, and again, we've mentioned this over the last few weeks, he loved them. His heart was open and laid bare before this church. He loved them as his own children. He loved them with the love of a believer, as a love, he says, even of, as a, like a father, because he brought them the gospel. They were, in a sense, his spiritual children in that way. And so he loved this church, and he loved them enough to confront their sin. And they certainly had... Plenty of sin that needed to be addressed. But he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. He says, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not, and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. He says, I know that there might still be unrepentant sin... When I come to you, I might have to address that sin. And remember, this is 2 Corinthians. He's already had some very rough experiences. He had to write the severe letter in which he caused them regret, and he was sorry, and we talked about that. But it did lead to the repentance of many of them. But here he's saying, some of you may not have repented, and I'm going to have to come, and it's going to be a sorrowful thing. And he says this, my God may humiliate me before you. What does he mean by that? Well, essentially he means this. That Paul knew that he was God's instrument of confronting their sin. And in his confrontation of their sin, there was the possibility of their rejection and his humiliation. There was the possibility of continued ill treatment of him by some. Now notice, however, that the humiliation here is not specifically from the church. He says, but my God may humiliate me before you, my God. Which is to say that ultimately it is God who called him to this ministry of caring and warning and confronting their sin. God has assigned the humbling task of confrontation and God is the one who assigns him to go in his faithful ministry to them as an apostle to possibly confront this sin. Therefore, it's God who is the one who might ultimately humiliate him. Why do I emphasize that point for us? Because again, it highlights what we've already mentioned. When we go to a sinning brother or sister, we are ultimately Christ's instruments of good in their life. We go on his errand and his mission. Yes, God may humiliate us. He may do that. But it is a matter of obedience. Paul did not step away from his responsibility, though he knew what it might cost. He rather did it, and he did it in God's strength. So God calls us to this ministry in one another's lives. It may humiliate us. We take that risk. We risk, we risk the censure of our brethren. We risk, risk their displeasure. But it is an expression of true love. And remember, building on one of the previous points, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, for time's sake, I'm only going to mention this reference. We're not going to talk about it. But Galatians 1.10, Paul, Paul builds on this lack of the fear of God. He says this in Galatians 10. Remember, he's there confronting the sin of the Galatians, these false teachers. And they're, they're tending to side and be influenced by this false doctrine of the Judaizers that had come in. And he says this after he gives them a, a rather strong rebuke at the beginning of chapter 1. He says... For now am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Now here's the past, the verse, the, the phrase uh, or statement uh, that I want to pick up on. He says this. If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. In fact, you could say I could not be a slave of Christ. In other words, we cannot be faithful servants in the ministry of Christ... If we don't fear him more than we fear the response of other people. So Paul is essentially saying this. I can do this. I can speak this way. I can speak boldly whatever the consequences may come because I am a slave of Christ. And I fear him. I love you and I love him. And so that's what enables me to fulfill this ministry, this difficult ministry, but this necessary ministry. If he would have been par- paralyzed by the fear of their negative opinion of him, then he would not have served them well. And he would not have served us, as in terms of writing the letter of, to the Galatia, if he had acted out of fear rather than out of faithfulness to Christ. Now, all that said, I'm gonna, let's look at the last second question. How then are we to receive confrontation when it comes our way? How are we to receive confrontation? What are we to do? What is the attitude that we're to have? What's the perspective that we are to have about that? Well, inasmuch as I said we're called to confront sin, we're also, at times, will be called to respond correctly when confronted with sin of some nature or error of some nature. The reality is that the principle of sin still resides in the regenerate sinner. Hence all of the commands in the call to confession of our sin. Though a regenerate believer has a new heart, is in union with Christ, has the indwelling and the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, has the principle of righteousness within them, there is also the principle of sin. So we still sin. We recognize that. You sin. I sin, and we can at times, and maybe I say likely very often, are blind to our own sin. And we require somebody outside of ourselves to help us to see the things that otherwise we would not see ourselves. So, just as a little footnote here, uh, I did remind myself to mention that if you hear this, And the primary concern in your heart then. And the things that I'm going to mention. Is thinking about how others should receive your rebuke. Uh, that's, That's not the right way to think about it. No. No. This is very much applicable to each one of us. For at least I hope. That at some point in each of our lives. That you have already had somebody come to you. And that you will in the future. Have somebody love you enough. To come to you and point out whatever is not right. Or not good. All right, Now. The, the idea of how we respond to being confronted actually connects us with a major theme in Scripture, but particularly a major theme of Old Testament wisdom literature, namely that between being wise and that between, of being foolish. Wise and foolish. In Proverbs 1, seven, he says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Spiritual fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools treasure sin in their heart more than they do God. Fools are, in the language of Proverbs, always right in their own eyes. And so they despise and they reject rebuke. Let me give you just a few passages. I'm just going to read them uh, without comment, really, Uh, of what... Proverbs says about the foolish person and rebuke. The foolish person rejects rebuke. Proverbs 13.1, a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. It does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 12.1, he who hates reproof is stupid. He said that. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despises his father's instruction. Proverbs 15.12, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. And what are the consequences of that kind of attitude? Let me read to you a few other things here. The fools suffer then the consequences of their foolishness. In Proverbs 1, he says, This wisdom is being personified here. It's wisdom speaking. And says, Because I called to you and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Proverbs ten seventeen: he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Proverbs 15, 10, and 32, whoever hates reproof will die, and the one who hates reproof despises himself. He who is, lastly, Proverbs 29, 1, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. So how could we summarize that? The foolish person refuses to receive rebuke and instruction and is, in the language of Proverbs, spiritually stupid, leads others astray by their foolishness, invites more discipline and calamity into their lives, confirms themselves to foolish decisions, despises himself, and soon may be broken beyond healing. That's how God refuses the soul that will not receive Censure who will not receive reproof. The one who refuses then or chafes at rebuke is at best spiritually immature and proud. In the best case scenario. In the worst case scenario, they are spiritually dead. And they yet love their sin and hate anything that would expose it. But in either case, it doesn't say something good. And it says something that should warn us in how we receive rebuke. Now, on the other hand, the more positive side, the spiritually wise and mature person gladly receives rebuke and grows in wisdom and the favor of God. Let me give you a few more verses from Proverbs. A wise person sees God's goodness in the rebuke. Proverbs 3.12, For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. A wise person knows, chapter 6, that the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. It's the way of life. It's the way of spiritual life and spiritual health. Therefore, Proverbs 9 says, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. In fact, he says in chapter 25, A wise person will receive reproof as valuable as gold. He says this, like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. They will value it, it is to say. They will see that as good, and valuable, and they will receive it. Let me just read off a few other ways he describes this. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Reprove a man of understanding and he will gain knowledge. Whoever heeds reproof is honored. Whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Therefore, Proverbs says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And finally, he says in chapter 1, verse 23, wisdom says, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So who is the wise person? The wise person is the one who fears the Lord, who receives rebuke and therefore grows in wisdom, gains knowledge and understanding, is spared from further discipline and troubles and is on the path of life. The person who receives rebuke demonstrates spiritual maturity, that is humility, and the reality of spiritual life. So those are the, the ways that we display either foolishness or we display wisdom in how we receive rebuke. We would display pride or we display humility. We display unrighteousness or we display a heart that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Therefore, one who is in the kingdom of God. Now, let me lay out uh, three ways then, three ways that we are to respond. First is this, how then should you respond? And these have already been hinted at or mentioned in some manner. First, you ready? When you are rebuked, when I receive some kind of correction or instruction, we are to have an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude. Thankfulness and gratitude to that person. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The same sentiment is expressed in Psalm 141.5. Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. And in fact, David prays that prayer in the psalm in the midst of in the midst of Psalm 145 of a prayer of the Lord to keep him from the influence of evil. So that statement comes in the context of him saying, I, I want to be protected from the hold that evil might have in my life. And he sees God executing that kind of protection and love in his life through the faithful rebuke of others, of the righteous. And he sees God's goodness in that. He sees his loving hand on him in that act. The idea is that he would rather be, have the reproach then of a true friend and a brother than the promise of pleasure or gain from the wicked. This is the wise person again. It is the one who Proverbs says is wise and accepts his father's discipline. It's the one who receives rebuke as an expression of mercy. Proverbs 9, 8, I read it earlier. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. He will love you. So when we see somebody straying in their affections towards the world, going down a path that is not good, it is a matter again of love To go to them. And we are then, in receiving that expression of love, to recognize it as such and to be thankful. To be thankful. To honor that brother. Even to recognize that this person came to me at great risk to themselves. They came to me putting their own interest aside to help me and to show love to me. And we should be profoundly grateful for that. We should be thankful for that. We should thank that brother for doing that or that sister for doing that. We need to have an attitude of gratitude toward them. And we need to see, receive them as a brother and their rebuke as such, even if it isn't well executed, we still need to be grateful. We need to receive it as an expression of humility and sincere faith. It means that we should see in that rebuke, again, Christ's own love for us in protecting us from our own sin and foolishness. And the one who is poor in spirit will be well aware of remaining sin and foolishness in our own heart and welcome those who help us to see it. Help us to see what we're too blind to see on our own. Again, one author says this, and I think he captures this well. He says... We will not just suffer someone speaking into our lives, but invite them to do so. And when they do, embrace it as a blessing. Even when it's a rebuke poorly delivered, and the sting and tone are off, and the motivation seems suspect. We'll want to ransack it for every grain of truth, and then repent and thank God for the grace of having people in our lives who love lives who love us enough to say something. If we acknowledge that we are flawed, selfish, and arrogant, and regularly sin with our words and actions, then we will learn to see a brother's rebuke for the tremendous grace that it is. In other words, part of gospel humility is to recognize that I as a sinner, even a regenerate sinner, with the principle of sin resident still in me, have an immense capacity for self-rationalization and justification for my own sin. I have an immense ability to excuse my own sin while I have an immense proclivity to notice sin in other people's lives. And so if we have a, a stance of humility of heart, we know that I know that I have sin that I'm blind to. I'm, I'm starting on that assumption. I'm not a starting on the assumption of my righteousness, but I'm starting on the assumption that there is the principle of unrighteousness in me that needs to be exposed. Do you see the difference? And that is the principle that we should walk as with uh, the principle of humility that we should have. Let me state it in this way. The humble heart is less concerned, and listen, with the manner of rebuke than with its content and its realities. You get that? The humble heart is less concerned with the way that the rebuke was given than what was actually said in the rebuke and the possibility that it might be true. Maybe even the assumption that the sin it exposes is real. This is the heart that is much more quick to censure self than others, to assume error in self rather than to assume righteousness, to consider the reality of what was spoken rather than trying to justify self or lessen the reality or shame of sin by shifting the blame onto the other person by uh, criticizing the imperfections, real or supposed, of their manner of delivery. You see, that's, that's an easy way for us to somehow lessen the shame that we feel By saying, by putting the blame on them and how they may have gone about it wrongly. And maybe even with the wrong motive. But the humble person says, I'm not concerned with the manner of what they said. But I'm actually listening to the content of what they said. And I'm assuming that there probably is, there is unrighteousness. And I'm going to receive it on that basis. And be thankful that God is so working in my life. That is true humility. One very brief mention here I would make of Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. One of the most uh, well-known biblically of this example happening between two apostles. In Galatians 2.11, it says, When Cephas came, that's Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, this is one of the most well-known rebukes in the New Testament. Without getting into the particulars, that's beyond our point, the big idea is this. Peter had been influenced by thinking that was not consistent with the gospel. Namely, he began to distance himself from Gentile believers out of fear of the censure of some Jews. Whether they were believers or unbelievers is another question. But the point is is that he didn't want their censure, and so he began to separate himself from the Gentiles. And in doing so, even as the apostle who opened the door of the gospel to the Gentiles through Cornelius in Acts chapter 10... Peter was then, in a way, denying the very gospel that he was proclaiming. And Paul saw that. And he saw that his denial of that gospel by doing that was influencing others. He says, even Barnabas was being carried away by this. Even Barnabas was being influenced. And because Peter's sin then was public, Paul publicly rebuked him. He publicly rebuked him before all. Now, if ever there would be a situation that would cause one to be self-defensive, When rebuked for wrong, it would be here. Peter held a high position, therefore that meant he had the farthest to fall. He would have the most reason to want to protect himself from any kind of censor or rebuke. And here is the Apostle Paul, before all, calling him out for his inconsistency, for his error. If ever there would have been an opportunity for someone to be argumentative to be angry at being called out, to be self-protecting, it would have been Peter in that moment. But in fact, while Scripture is silent on Peter's response, that really wasn't the point, Scripture does suggest that he took it very well and was properly humbled and repented of his wrong actions. And my personal opinion is that he did immediately. That he was immediately struck. And he immediately changed his actions. But in either case, the fact is that later... In scripture, in the second epistle of Peter, he took opportunity there to express his love and acceptance of Paul. And I think he wanted to do this all the more because he appreciated Paul because of his ministry in his life. In the second epistle, in chapter 3, we won't read it. Peter affirms Paul as an apostle that's equal to him in authority and truth. And then he refers to them in this, him in this way. Our beloved brother Paul. It is an expression, it's not unique to Peter and Paul in this situation, but it is an expression nonetheless that communicates affection. It communicates brotherly love. It communicates the tenderness of heart that Peter had towards Paul and his love for him. And it shows Peter's desire to affirm him as a minister of the truth before the recipients of this letter, in other words, to the church. And so he loved him for that. He loved him for that. So the first way we should receive it is with an attitude of gratitude, with thankfulness, with appreciation. Know if somebody rebukes you, that took a lot for them to do that. It wasn't easy for them. And be thankful. I'm only going to mention these other two because of time's sake. And I'll mention some references. You can look at them on your own. It'd be great to look at them together, but I'll mention them. The second is this. How should we respond And this goes with the first, but with humility and the acknowledgement of wrong without self-defense, self-justification, or self-protection. Now, negatively, the exact opposite of that was in King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. You can read it on your own. Positively, we have the example of David in 1 Samuel 12. You remember the sin of David with Bathsheba, murdering her husband. We don't know how long, probably about a year, a little bit more. He was covering over the sin God was disciplining him, disciplining him internally. Psalm 32, his strength wasted away as with the fever heat of summer. But then God sends Nathan to him to confront his sin. You know the story. And immediately though, the point here is that when David realized, when, when, when uh, Nathan gave him the parable about the rich man taking a lamb from the poor man so that he could feed the, his rich friends, his guest, David said, that man you know, should, should be punished severely and he needs to pay back and he should die. And then Nathan says, you are that man. And David immediately said, I'm guilty. He confessed his sin. He sought the forgiveness of the Lord. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't make excuses. He fully acknowledged it. And his life played out that he fully accepted the consequences that it brought. The same thing happens in 2 Corinthians Chapter, 9, or chapter 7, verses 9 and 11. But let me end here. What is the end of all of this? And it's simply this, that we as the body of Christ have been redeemed from our sin through faith in Christ. We are justified by faith. We are covered by His righteousness. By the Spirit of God, we are in union with Him. We have His life in us. And by the ministry of the Spirit, we are being conformed to his image, longing for his return, wanting to present ourselves to him without shame when we stand before him. Yet, though in Christ we are not yet what we should be, we are not yet what we will be. We're still in the process of growing to be like Christ and growing in holiness. And it is a mercy of God. It is, a, it is the purposes and plan of God that how he works his will of producing holiness in our life, part of it, is through the ministry that we have to one another. The willingness that we have with, to one another to be involved in each other's life, to point out sin, to correct, always, always, always looking to ourselves, knowing that we could be tempted in the same thing, We are guilty in our own way of sin against the Lord and always, always with the attitude of restoring that believer to fellowship with Christ and the others. It is to be an instrument of good. The exact wrong way to rebuke is simply to point out wrong. No, no, no. It is to restore. It is to help. It is to come alongside. It is to love them tenderly and humbly and to move them on the path of righteousness, we hope. Even if sometimes it doesn't go smooth at first, that is the commitment. So it's an expression of God's grace and love. It's part of being God's family. And it's how we need to relate to one another. Well, we'll pick up another topic next week. um, But let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, commit these things to Him. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your Spirit. The Spirit of the Son, you said in Galatians 4th that enables us to take ownership of these things. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for how often we fear man rather than fearing you. Forgive us for how often we love ourselves and our own comfort rather than loving our brothers and sisters enough to speak into their lives words of truth that can be difficult and hard. But help us as well to grow in these areas. And help us to be a fellowship that is marked by humility, gospel humility that is marked by sincere love that not only delights in one another's company and enjoys one another's fellowship, but also at times does the hard thing of speaking those truths that are uncomfortable. And help us to be those who receive them well. And all of that is a reflection of the gospel realities in our own life, that we are sinners who are entrusted in you, our glorious Savior, who love you and have a faith that is sincere and want our lives to reflect your honor, and your majesty, and your worthiness in this world. So we commit these things to you, and we pray in your matchless name, O Christ, who died and redeemed us from our sin and rose from the dead to give us life. Amen.